1: Pastor Keith Crosby of Hillside Church.
2: You ever st- Let's just stop and think. Why would you, if there's no such thing as membership, if there's no such thing as a formal relationship, why would you have a whole procedure? Why would Jesus give us a procedure how to remove somebody? Why a process like that? I mean, who was Jesus after all? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. This is God speaking about how to remove somebody from, the mem- from membership in the congregation, in the assembly. I can
0: see the promised land Though there's pain within the plan There is victory in the end Your love is my battle cry The anthem for all my life Every giant will fall the mountains will move. every chain of the past. You've broken into all the fear of the lies. We're singing the truth that nothing is impossible with you. Oh, nothing
1: is impossible Hello and welcome nothing is Grace to Live radio broadcast with Pastor Keith Crosby, Senior Pastor of Hillside Church in San Jose, California. We are so delighted that you've chosen to spend time with us today studying God's Word. And as we always do, we would encourage you to follow along with us in your Bibles if you can. On today's broadcast, Pastor Keith begins a brand new teaching series entitled, Nuts and Bolts, Taking Nothing for Granted When It Comes to Our Faith you might be surprised at some of the things you would expect people to know, and even more surprised at some of the things that they don't. Today, Pastor Keith will take us on a short journey to address some of the major building blocks of our faith. In part one of this series, Pastor Keith will address some of the questions regarding church membership, questions such as, why do people tend to be resistant to the concept of church membership? And why is it so difficult to be accountable to a local church? Well, Pastor Keith will address these and many other questions on today's broadcast in a message he's entitled, The Nuts and Bolts of Church Membership. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with us today to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Now here's Pastor Keith with today's study.
2: Father, we thank you for this day. It's a day that you've made, another day for us to live in light of your grace to show grace and mercy to others, to grow in that grace. Lord, you've raised each and every one of us up for such a time as this. You've put us together in this place as a church family. May we, Lord, serve you by reaching the world beyond these doors and see that world changed one soul at a time, from the littlest child on Promotion Sunday to the most senior adult. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right. We begin a new series today. It's a short series, and if you are a first-time visitor, this, normally I preach through a passage or verse by verse or paragraph by paragraph. Today it'll be a little bit different. Uh, we're going to do a, t- a series of topical sermons, four of them, called Nuts and Bolts. Nuts and Bolts. You're wondering who comes up with these titles. I wish I could blame someone else, but actually it's Roberto and I. So you can blame him. This No, this anyway. So this was mine. So we're going to begin, uh, first week is talking about the nuts and bolts of church membership. The second week, the second Sunday, is going to be the nuts and bolts of, uh, of the, the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's table. The third week will be the nuts and bolts of giving or generosity. And the fourth week will be the nuts and bolts of serving. And you're probably going, is this necessary? I mean, is, aren't these things a given? Don't the average garden variety... Christians know about these things? Well, I learned through 20 years of business and 15 to 18 years of pastoral ministry, 35 years of leadership to take nothing for granted. I mean, you, you would think, you know, you know, you would say, well, you know, and somebody said to me when I was talking about this, well, that's like geography. Everybody knows where the Pacific Ocean is. You know, everybody knows where the Panama Canal is, right? Everybody knows where Iraq and Afghanistan is. Everybody knows what language we speak in England, or Britain or whatever else. Well, those are nuts and bolts things that you would think and you would take for granted. But in this video, I think you're going to get a sense of why I take nothing for granted. Maestro? We're talking with?
0: Todd what? If you met someone from Amsterdam, what nationality would they be? Well, um, I have no idea, Amsterdamian. <laughs> Amsterdamian. <laughs> How many oceans are there? Oceans? Yeah.
2: I've only been to one.
0: You've been to one? I've which, been to one. Which one were you at? Florida. Which one?
2: An ocean.
0: Um, which, which ocean did you go to? In Florida? Pacific
2: Ocean. You went
0: to Pacific Ocean yeah. in Florida. How was it? It's good. It's good. It was good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And where is Iraq?
1: I don't know. Like, South Europe or something?
0: South I Europe. I don't, I don't
1: know.
0: Iraq is in South. So you go to Europe, you go South. Yeah, I
2: don't
0: know. What country would you find the Panama Canal in?
2: Panama Canal. Is there a country named Panama?
0: No? I don't
2: know, is there? No. Oh, is it in the U.S.? No. We take nothing for granted, all right? And so today, with that introduction, we take up the uh, matter of church membership, because most of us would like to believe, you know, it's just like what color is George Washington's white horse? You never know, right? Who's buried in Lincoln's, or, you know, Lincoln's tomb, Grant's tomb, you know? These are the things that you think people understand in the Christian church, but times have changed. There was a time where you would think the average 6th or 7th grader would know, would know where the Panama Canal was or things like that. The one that was not my favorite was they asked them what language they spoke in Great Britain. And the answer was Great Britain-ish, you know, And, and they said, uh, well, can you speak any of that? Do you know any words in British? And the person goes, I don't know. And he goes... Cooper Mini? Oh, yeah, Cooper Mini, you know. But anyway, so we come to the topic of church membership today because we don't want to take anything for granted. We surely don't. A lot of times when I speak to people about, oh, you know, where do you go to church? I do so, Okay, are you a member? Well, no, I mean, I don't, I don't believe in church membership, you know. The Bible doesn't teach church membership. And I'm like, is that your final answer? Uh, because the Bible does teach church membership. One of the questions we're going to ask and answer today is, is it mandated? Is church membership in the Bible. And a lot of people say, well, no, there is no 11th commandment, you shall join a church formally. To which when I hear that kind of answer, I say, "Uh, there's no marriage service in the Bible either. Do you think the Bible teaches about marriage? Do you think God expects people to marry? Can you find a wedding liturgy in the Bible? And the answer is no, you can't. We bury people here, don't we? Can anybody find a Funeral liturgy in the Bible or a funeral requirement? This is how. This is what. No, you know why? Because there was a time when those kind of things were assumed. They were just givens. Nobody even thought about it because the the early church would say to themselves, "No one in their right mind would believe there's no such thing as a formal relationship with a body of believers where you bind yourself to that body." Just like no one would say, "There's well, there's no wedding liturgy." No believer. Throughout all of history, could have ever imagined that it would come a time where somebody would say, Well, I don't know that marriage is required or that we bury people. But when you go into the Bible, you see uh, the wedding of Adam and Eve take place. There's no liturgy. You know, God brings her to him, and we read, For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We see the the wedding at Cana, Galilee. We don't read the service, we don't read the order of service, we don't know who spoke. But Jesus is there at the wedding. That's where he performed his first miracle. You you see the wedding supper of the Lamb in Revelation 4. So no one would ever say, well, there's no such thing as a wedding service. Marriage isn't really required. Those things were just given because no one could imagine that anybody would not understand that. The same is true of church membership. There was a time where... uh, The idea of not being a member formally bound in a covenant relationship to a local church would have been inconceivable. But as people become less literate in geography, they also become less literate in the Word of God, and they understand the will of God and the way of God less and less. You know, there used to be an old commercial that a mind is a terrible thing to waste, and so is a ministry. We want to be clear about God's expectations of us. That's why we read the Bible. And when you read the Bible, what you see so clearly is that church membership is a given. It doesn't have to be taught as the 11th or 12th or 13th commandment, because it should be, as we read the Word of God, as somebody once said to me jokingly, intuitively obvious to the casual observer, that people enter into a formal, lasting relationship with a local church just like they enter into a formal, lasting relationship with a spouse, the Bible is all about commitment in, all many, in many ways and at all kinds of levels. So today we come to the nuts and bolts of church membership. The basis of that is Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 and other texts. We're going to work through uh, different parts of the Bible, but let me just read for you, and it's not going to be up here, I don't think. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another All the more as you see the day drawing near. What you have there is the mandate to attend a local church, to attend a local gathering of worshipers. And what's happening here in Hebrews is the writer is having to remind people what they've known and forgotten about Christ and about their relationship with a local body of believers. And so what we want to do today with that in mind is we're going to start, I'm going to limit us to five indicators of formal church membership in the Bible. We're going to look to the scripture and identify at least five indications for local church membership, formal church membership, mandatory membership. Now I know it's popular today because some of us grew up in the 60s and the 70s and now we're in the postmodern 21st century where people don't like authority and they don't like responsibility and they don't like commitments and accountability, but that's more of a sin issue than it is a biblical one. And so today what I'm going to do is just walk you through the Bible in different parts, and we're going to see at least five indicators of church membership. All right? So the first uh, indicator is what I call the common sense indicator. The common sense indicator. The logical indicator. Think about it. There are some things that if you just use common, you know, we all have it, but we don't all use it. It's a precious commodity. Same thing, we're logical creatures, right? We're created in the image and likeness of God. If we use logic, and we use common sense, it will begin to dawn on us, to occur to us, that membership is taught in the Bible, is assumed, is a given. Where do we start? Let's start with the teachings of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. This is a great passage. Uh, this passage is what some people call the excommunication passage. Some people call it the church discipline passage. Some people call it the biblical confrontation passage. It's how we deal with things within the church. And Jesus is talking to his disciples, and what does he say? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Go confront him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. It stops there. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So you bring two people to make sure you've got your facts right and that th- these people have done whatever you say they've done. Sort of a mutual accountability thing. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So if this person is, now I'm not talking about, you know, he didn't say Hadia or she didn't say Hadia this morning, which this is a sin issue, a besetting sin issue. So there's a private confrontation. Then you bring in some people to hold you and them accountable. Hopefully people will snap out of it. If they don't snap out of it, in three or four or five weeks, whatever it takes, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now it becomes a public matter. You see this a lot with adultery. You see this a lot with uh, gossip or divisive things. But I want you to watch how this plays out. If he refuses to tell it to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him, that's a command. Anytime you see let in the Old Testament or new, it's an imperative. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Treat him as if he were an unbeliever, that's a Gentile, or somebody somebody inside who has betrayed the family of God. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What's going on there? We have a procedure, we have a process for the removal of of a member from the local church we have a process we have multiple opportunities you've heard of the three strike rule this is the four strike rule it's a procedure it's a membership revocation procedure you ever stop let's just stop and think why would you if there's no such thing as membership if there's no such thing as a formal relationship why would you have a procedure why would jesus give us a procedure how to remove somebody why a process like that i mean who is jesus after all in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. This is God speaking about how to remove somebody from, the mem- from membership in the congregation, in the assembly. Jesus Christ gave this procedure anticipating the coming creation of the New Testament church. And he uses the word church here, by the way, and not synagogue. So we know what he's talking about. And he's giving us a membership revocation procedure. Now, do we find anything like this anywhere else in the New Testament? Well, you find it all over the New Testament. You find it in First and Second Thessalonians. You find it in Titus 3, 10 and 11. But one of the clearest, most, to me, frightening, heartbreaking examples is in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. Let's take a look at it. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. Let me set this up for you. Paul is explaining nuts and bolts to the unruly and raucous church at Corinth. And he's explaining to them how things work because they've sort of lost their way. It's kind of funny, you know, people say, I want to be like the first century church. Which one? Galatia, Corinth, Laodicea, you know. But look what he's saying here. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? So this guy is coming to church and they're like letting it happen because after all, who are they to judge? But look what Paul says. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Now watch this. This is what they used to call in the brethren movement a solemn assembly. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present and with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that... His spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What goes on here? It's really a continuation of what Jesus taught in Matthew 18. Remove him. Remove him. Elsewhere it says, take the factious or divisive man and warn him once or twice and remove him from among you. What we have in the New Testament are removal procedures from membership. People are removed from the fellowship. They They are expelled. Now, expelled from what? If there is no such thing as formal church membership... If there is no idea like accountability within the local church, who's getting removed and who's removing them? doesn't make sense. But for them, it was a given. For them, it was a given. It was was what we would say today, a no-brainer. They could not imagine not being bound together to one another as comrades in arms and as brothers and sisters in ministry as part of a particular church family, whether it was in Thessalonica, whether it was in Corinth, whether it was in Crete, that's where Titus was written to, or Ephesus, where First Timothy is written. So I want you to think about this. And now you're probably saying, yeah, but did they have all these forms? No, they didn't. But they also dressed in togas, and we don't either, right? The technology has changed. The culture has changed. But the principles are eternal. They remain the same. So that is the common sense indicator. You have a removal procedure. You have a removal procedure, and it's shown throughout the New Testament. Removal from what? For membership. For membership where? In the local church. It's a given. That's why I call it the common sense indicator. But now we come to our second indicator. And that's the official or office indicator. The official indicators. Where do we find them? We found them all over the New Testament. Let's start with the easiest one. First Timothy 3 and 8. The official indicators. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer... He desires a noble task. Verse 8, deacons likewise. It doesn't say role. It says office. So what's the big deal? Well, there are formal offices within the church. There are two offices within the church, according to the Bible, elder and deacon. Well, if there's no such thing as a formal church body, if we can just one or two of us meet in our house and play church every Sunday, why are there offices? Well, that's common sense because the church is structured. Everything is to be done decently and in order. There's a right way and a wrong way. And just as much as you can be removed from the body, removed from membership, there are offices within the membership, offices within the body of Christ, formal offices, like offices in an organization. Why? To keep things orderly, to keep things going. You know, if people just come and go and there's no relationship, like we used to see in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and even now within relationships between men and women, there is no Fidelity. There is no loyalty. There is no connection. But it even goes beyond this. When we talk about the formal offices or formal officials, you know what? There are formal qualifications for these offices. This just isn't a willy-nilly kind of. Uh, you know, there's a. You know, in the old days, in the first century, and in China and North Korea, and places where there's oppression, you have these little house churches. But eventually. They morph out of house churches. In America now, we're kind of getting into the house church movement because it kind of scratches an itch to be on our own and do our own thing. But those things are only transitory. Those are only temporal. You look at China now, the house churches have buildings. You look at Russia now, the house churches have buildings. They become more formal. They have offices. They have formal leaders. A growth group and a church are two different things. And what we see here are qualifications. You just don't put the, the sign door on the door, church. And you just step up and you become... There are qualifications for leadership. And who's going to select that leadership? The members. So what are the qualifications for leadership? The formal, official offices of the church. Well, Let's look at 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 8. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the children of God? He must, be, he must not be a recent convert, he must, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by who? Outsiders. Outsiders, you know, those outside the membership, those outside the church, so that, that's the purpose of, he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise, deacons in the same way is what that means. Deacons just like elders must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. What is going on here? I mean, what's a What's an insider and what's an outsider, right? An outsider is somebody outside the church, outside the family of God, outside the local congregation, outside the membership. An insider is a church member. And just not anybody can become an elder. They just can't. Not just anybody can become a deacon. I want you to think about this. We have these indications, the common sense indicator. You have a removal procedure, a process for removing people. And now we have offices, and not only do we have offices, we have the qualifications for these offices, right? This is the official or office indicator. And beyond that, you even have a removal procedure for elders. Where do we find that? We find that in First Timothy 5, 9 through 22. It talks about how you approach the removal of an elder. Now, this is just a willy-nilly collection of folks who are like the Confederacy in the Civil War. where well, we're in the country, then we're out of the country when we feel like it. It's not the way it works. Although some churches do resemble the war between the states sometimes. What we have here is this. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Sound familiar in Matthew 18, right? As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. Tell it to the whole church so the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Then there's a warning about the replacement. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure. So we have a way to take them out, and and if you're going to replace them, you know there's a process. You just don't pick somebody. Oh, he's a big wheel in the community. It doesn't work that way.